0: Hello, my loves. Welcome to another episode of Therapy Recovery. It's your host, Nikkel, and today we're going to be wrapping up our conversations regarding Mental Health Awareness Month. Today, I'm so happy to bring on another guest, Roger Jabot, and he is a psychotherapist who also specializes in trauma therapy. Today, we're going to be talking about something that we're all so familiar with, but have a really hard time identifying, and that's triggers. So, Make sure you have a nice cup of tea with you. Sit back and relax and let's tune in. Hi, Roger. How are you?
1: I'm very well. How are you today?
0: I'm good. I'm enjoying the sun. It is so beautiful outside.
1: Yeah, how about it? It is gorgeous.
0: Yeah. So um I want to thank you for joining me today on the podcast because as you know, May is mental health awareness month and I think it's a wonderful time for us to talk about a variety of different things within the mental health community. And today I asked you to help us discuss the, the complexity of triggers. So on Instagram and just in, I guess, general society, it's kind of a term that people just throw around so casually, but I really want us to focus on the psychological aspect of it as well as some of the physiological um, responses that people might get once they are triggered. So.
1: Right. Great. I'm with you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. So um, do me a favor and give us a quick elevator pitch and let the audience know all about you and the wonderful work that you do.
1: Sure. Um, My name is Roger Chabot. I live and work out here in the Berkshire Hills of Massachusetts. I'm a practicing uh, psychotherapist where I offer psychodynamic psychotherapy as well and increasingly as EMDR, uh, which is a form of trauma therapy. Um, and I can be found listed on Psychology Today and coming soon, Rogershabot.com.
0: Nice. Very nice. So um, why don't we just hop into it? So one of my first questions is what are triggers and how might an individual identify that they're actually being triggered in a particular moment?
1: Right. So, there's a lot to that question. I'll try to be concise. But triggers are really any stimulus a smell, a sound, an image, maybe a touch that unconsciously or consciously reminds someone of a past traumatic event from their history. You know, when we have traumatic events that are what we like to say uh, unprocessed. They are stored in the limbic part of the brain. And the limbic part of the brain is uh, keeps these events in a separate memory network where they kind of have a, you know, where they're kind of alive. They're kind of sitting back there, pulsing, fused with all of the emotion and all of the physical response of the original event. And so a trigger comes along, sometimes knowingly, sometimes as a surprise, and presses on that or activates that traumatic event. And the person in the present can respond as they did in the past.
0: That explains a lot. So (laughs) I'm just thinking back (laughs) to like moments where sometimes I'm like, I don't understand like why I reacted that way. And I don't know if that particular reaction, whether that's, you know, like crying or something actually you know, was the thing for that particular, you know, action that might have happened. So like maybe passing by something, it reminds you of a place or a person, then all of a sudden you're crying. Right. Mm.
1: Right. And the way that I sometimes explain it with patients that I'm working with is that these events, as I said, get stored in the limbic part of the brain. And what a more doubt, like EMDR ends up doing is if you consider that memory, let's call it a file, right? And it's stored in the limbic part of the brain. When we do a procedure like EMDR or other trauma-based therapies, we're taking that file out of the limbic system. We're reprocessing that memory and then we are filing it back into the cortex. And so the difference there is that the cortex, you know, not only, you know, when it, when it was filed in the limbic part of the brain, as I said, with all the emotion and all the physical uh, part of that event, but without context, without words, without explanation, without the ability to put narrative to it. And so when a memory is reprocessed and we file it back, as I keep saying, in the cortex part of the brain, it rests there much more comfortably because it because it is there with context and narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that they would, what a person would experience if they've gone through a therapy that does that is that the, the trigger, the memory is there, but the trigger is not.
0: Mm, interesting. So are triggers only associated with a disorder like PTSD? Cause I think like that's where it's most like um, popularly um, correlated to, I guess.
1: Right, so post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD is a diagnosis that very commonly we will see people uh, experience and struggle, but it's certainly not the only one that people can present with, right? So for instance, if you go by the DSM, which is the, you know, the Bible for diagnoses in mental health, there are certain you know, very stringent criteria and several criteria groups for meeting a diagnosis of PTSD. And of course, many people you know, have that diagnosis, but someone who doesn't meet the full criteria for that diagnosis, doesn't mean that they are immune to triggers. Someone cannot meet the full criteria for uh, a bona fide PTSD diagnosis, but still have an event in their life that they experience triggering by. Does that make sense?
0: It does. So um, another guest who I spoke with about this kind of briefly mentioned two types of traumas, like the little T's and the big T's. Could you kind of like help us dissect that just a little bit?
1: The big T's and the little T's, or or sometimes it's, uh, we might call it sort of like a discrete trauma. So a discrete trauma would be a singular event, car accident, being mugged, having a physical injury, you know, maybe hiking or, or something like that, like a single event. A complex trauma is something that happens repeatedly and is less discrete. So when we think of what I was just describing as a discrete event, like time, place, and action, Mm -hmm. but someone can be traumatized from a repeated experience of parental neglect, relationship issues, Mm -hmm. complex trauma tends to be more about relational trauma and can be harder to get at.
0: Interesting. So it's interesting that you paired it with more so about like relational trauma so something else that's on my mind is how, um, I guess, triggers manifest physically. And I kind of gave an insight as to how um, one of my first experiences with being, I guess, triggered happened. And it was me like passing by somewhere that reminded me of a particular point in time that was very traumatizing for me. And I remember just like, I felt like I was crying. And I just like recognized like tears were falling down, but I was just like, why am, I, why am I crying? And I just could not make the connection, And obviously, until I went to my therapist for us to break it down some more.
1: Right, right. So the way they manifest is almost always and primarily in the body, um, mm-hmm. along with lots of strong emotion, right? But the body is always uh, a really good place to check in. And so mm-hmm. what people will notice when they are triggered is that the body is tight That the breath is shallow they may notice you know a tremble or a tremor sometimes you know in their hand or in their whole body you know body tightness i think we already mentioned that one sweating some people will sweat so it, it really sort of runs the gamut did i answer the full question
0: it does it does but i guess i i would like to also understand what exactly is happening in the body as like you're being triggered for you to, for example, start sweating, for you to start crying, for you to feel like you have to run away or something like that.
1: Right. So, so as I was saying before, these traumatic events are stored back in the brain, in the limbic part of the brain. Mm -hmm. And here you are years later, sort of going about your business. And all of a sudden you come across something that you either know or unwittingly, Experience um, that sort of presses on that old memory, and so the body and the mind begins to react as if you are in that original situation, right? So, if in that original situation you froze, you broke into a cold sweat, you know whatever the elements of that reaction were mm-hmm. in the present, when you when a stimulus comes along that triggers the old memory the body and the mind will sort of start to respond as if they are back in that original situation.
0: So um, kind of like the, um, what's it called? The flight, fight, or freeze phenomenon.
1: Right, fight, flight, freeze, or flop is another one. What, what was that? Fight, flight, freeze, or flop. Um, what's flop? That one sort of gets left out a lot. It's flop is just like somebody just falls out or or faints or passes out or that's the way they their their response you know manifests.
0: Interesting. That's honestly the first time I'm hearing that. I've never heard of that one before. So, another follow-up question would be is it better for folks to avoid their
1: triggers? It's always better to avoid your triggers if you know them, right? So, if I have a uh, traumatic memory that's associated with crowds I know enough about that to not subject myself to being in crowds because I know I'm going to be super uncomfortable Mm -hmm. I know that my likelihood for me to be triggered and that's something I can anticipate and choose to avoid but life being what life is we can't always be sure that we're going to be avoiding triggers and so in in inevitably we encounter something or someone that you know can trigger us and at that point we want to be able to have enough responses coping skills to you know kind of help us dial down our responses in the moment
0: so basically gradually neutralizing your reaction to a triggering stimulus
1: yes yeah
0: okay and I guess that depends on the person and what their goals are, right? So if someone is more avoidant, for example, because I'm just seeing like how this can go to the other end of the extreme. So I think about like folks with um, avoidant attachment, right? And so they have a hard time with their emotions and expressing them in relationships. And so perhaps like that's because in the past it was triggering for them. So For that person, if they decide that, well, if it triggers me, I'm just going to avoid it. But as a result of that, they end up creating another problem, which is a lack of intimacy in most of their interpersonal relationships. So how do you balance that with a client?
1: How do I balance that with a client? I mean, I think so, you know, just working off the question about triggers, I think with someone just in that situation that you're describing we really want to do some work to what we might call resource the person so we want someone to be able to develop skills that allow them to cope that allow them to self-soothe that allow them to stay present in the present right because what triggers do is they take us out of the present moment right they sort of bring us back to some place we're not even sure of sometimes and you know they sort of take us out of the moment and so By helping somebody begin to develop a strong coping skills and uh, learn more about how those past events are impacting their ability for intimacy now, you know, we can begin to sort of chip away at that.
0: Interesting. So without revealing any, you know, identifiable information, which I know you won't, do you have a story that you can share with us that kind of illustrates um, some of like the impact of the work that you're doing with your clients in terms of triggers?
1: Yeah. Well, I was just going to, I'm going to share more of a personal story, which is a, you know, a little more neutral and uh, I don't have to worry about one else's personal story, but uh, when training for EMDR, you know, one of the, one aspect of the training is that all the therapists are sort of, you know, being guinea pigs, let's say. And so we're sort of practicing on each other. And so one of the traumas that I chose to work on for me, was that I had been in a series, a small handful of snow-related car accidents. None, none of which was ever too severe, but it left me in such a state, and I live in a very snow, snowy town. Yeah. Um, it left me in such a state that whenever I had to go out in the car, and where I live, you have to drive to get everywhere. Whenever I had to be in the car, I was wrapped with anxiety, I was, you know, white knuckling, you know, two hands on the steering wheel as tight as I could and like really, really kind of uncomfortable. And so this was in about October. And so we did this and, you know, it seemed to work okay, but there was really no way to test it out. It was October, there's no snow, right? It wasn't until February of the following year I was in a car with somebody in the middle of a snowstorm and we were stopped at a light and just a light bulb went off in my head. I was like, I have been driving around in these snowstorms and not sweating it. I have been, you know, cool as cucumber, not sweating the elements and, you know, realizing that, you know, what I had done with EMDR has sort of zapped my trigger and the trigger in that story is the weather and, you know, uh, affiliated with driving. So that is one way that those things can be neutralized or sort of softened to allow someone to you know, engage in activities that they've been avoiding.
0: I like that. That's. Something that's so interesting to me, because I guess I could share a trigger of mine that I've overcome. And one of that didn't kind of like get the gist about like avoid an attachment. That's me. Um, And (laughs) it's kind of like related to obviously, it's like past relationship experiences. And so some obviously through therapy and EMDR work, like I've processed a lot of it, but something that was very overwhelming for me was like getting back into the dating world and just taking it one step at a time and so something that you know through therapy and with very close personal like friendships and relationships is that I try to verbalize what my fears are and whether that's through my therapist or writing it out in my journal and then I process it by saying okay if that were to happen then what because I think what I used to think is that I won't be able to handle X, Y, and Z again. I won't be able to leave X, Y, and Z again. I won't be able to, to really like fall in love with the idea of falling in love again. So step by step, I wrote all of those fears down. And then I just every day just like process, okay, if that were to happen, what things can I do every day to, if it were to happen, overcome it? and it was very very comforting to know that there's always a way to get back to i guess a a more healthy sense of self regardless of what might happen on the outside so
1: yeah right right yeah it sounds like you did some nice work there and i you know i think that it's often it's important that people know how to respond to a trigger right and so when we talk about sort of being activated or being triggered um, we want to be able to sort of dial that down to any degree, right? So if the response is at a 10, we can, you know, one of the best ways to start mitigating that is to connect with breath and body. So breath is your best friend and it's your cheapest tool. It's always with you. You <laughs> never for it. You just have to connect to it. And yeah. so I, I work with lots of different breathing techniques with most of my clients to sort of help them to, or assist them to sort of turn down the volume on a problematic response.
0: Can you share one with us? Cause that was actually my next question. What are some, you know, nice affordable ways that people can, you know, try and tackle this issue? Cause there unfortunately are a lot of folks who aren't able to afford traditional therapy even though it's such a
1: necessity. Right, right. So will you be my uh,
0: Yeah, I'll be the guinea pig.
1: Let's do okay, it. <laughs> so one of the things that I like to do with people is something called pursed lips breathing. And this is super simple. And so the instruction is this we do a nice and easy breath in through the nose and we do a long and steady breath out through the mouth and What I often say to people is imagine you have a straw in your mouth, or if you're a musician, maybe think about, you know, playing a reed instrument, and you blow the breath out long and steady and so one rule of thumb is to, you know, have your exhaling breath be at least twice as long as your inhaling breath. We're Um, adding
0: math to this, Mr. Roger.
1: Lord. so the short version of that is short in, long out. Uh, <laughs> so I'll ask you to go ahead and give me five repetitions of that. And I'll uh, comment uh, as you're doing that.
0: Okay. All right, guys, for the folks listening on the podcast, it begins now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so breathing in this way, first of all, it begins to deepen the breath. It helps oxygenate the blood and it helps to activate the parasympathetic nerve. And the parasympathetic nerve is associated with rest and digest and can be an instant way to start dialing down the volume or the intensity of the triggered response.
0: You're so right. That feels really nice. (laughs) Oh my gosh.
1: do it in their own rhythm, you know, sort of find their own pace, but a nice paced, relaxed breathing and the short, you know, the crib notes to this is short in, long out.
0: Okay. Okay. That's really, really good advice. Are there any um, resources that you would recommend? Maybe a book um, that people can read up on to give them more information and knowledge? I am drawing a blank. <laughs> no, it's okay. Um, one book that comes to mind, and maybe you could give me some of your thoughts on it, maybe like a quick review if you've read it, is The Body Stores Trauma by um, Mr. Bessel van der Kolk. I think that's how I pronounce his name. Please forgive me if he's listening. Uh, that'd be the dream. Um, but um, it essentially talks about like the history of um, trauma a lot of like the developments that have happened there as well as some he touches a little lightly on emdr just a little bit um yeah. but it really goes into like the physiological aspects of trauma and how as you mentioned before one singular event or maybe complex trauma can follow someone and how it physically manifests in the body whether like through heart tremors you know panic attacks all of this other stuff so I would definitely recommend that. That's something that really helped me feel more empowered because it makes you realize that you're definitely not alone and that this is a completely normal reaction to folks who've gone through traumatic experiences.
1: Right. Absolutely. And, and I think I think the, the book you're referring to is The Body Keeps the Score, which actually I'm Currently re-reading through Audible right now, but you have the synopsis pretty well. He gives a really nice uh, sort of breakdown of the science of this and how the brain works, and then how it manifests in the individual. And what we often say in trauma therapy is that the body never lies. You know, so sometimes, you know, I'll be in a conversation with somebody, you know. I have this reaction, and I have a fragment of a memory. I'm not even sure if this thing actually happened to me. And I'll say, "Well, what's your body telling you, right?" Um, and often, if you're not sure, check in with the body. If the body's reacting, that is almost always a validator of what you think has happened to you. So, if the body is activated and the body is reacting mm-hmm. in that sort of a validating way, that's a confirming sort of tool. If you yeah. Know.
0: Absolutely. And thank you so much for the correction. I'm sorry, folks. It is what it is. My memory, it's body. It is <laughs> but oh my gosh, thank you so much. This was such an insightful talk. And could you let the audience know and I think you mentioned before in the beginning um, that you have a website coming out. But is there any other way that people can contact you if they wanted like more information or for folks in your area who might be interested in you know, coming oh. to you for service?
1: Yes, absolutely. So I can be easily found on Psychology Today, which is like yellow pages for psychotherapists. And the spelling of my last name is C H A B O T. And my direct office line is 413 623 2149.
0: Website to come. Awesome. Thank you so much. But before we wrap up, um, I usually have a closing exercise that I like to do with my guests. Basically, you're going to close your eyes and you're going to imagine yourself in a peaceful place or space. And it could be anywhere in the world with whomever you would like. And Mm -hmm. in this place, you're sipping your favorite beverage Mm -hmm. and you're just so happy and so grateful for how far you've come in life. And so thankful for how content you feel in this moment. If there is one quote from a favorite book, a movie, a song, whatever that might be that can encapsulate that feeling for you, what would it be?
1: Wherever you go, there you are.
0: That's so good. <laughs> oh my gosh, that just really makes you realize how present you are. I love that. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate you coming on and helping us, you know, be more informed about this.
1: It was my pleasure. It's what I love to do. And uh, I wish you luck with therapy.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I appreciate you. Bye.